Hello and welcome to The Dirt in association with Beer 52. Keep listening to find out how you can get your hands on eight craft beers for free. This is the podcast that celebrates all growing achievements, weeds and all. I'm Laura, editor of Grow Your Own magazine. And I'm Grow Your Own's deputy editor, Blake. Later in the show, we'll be catching up on the best gardening news stories from the week. But first of all, we are delighted to be joined by garden designer, author, TV presenter, Nick Bailey. Hi, Nick. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Very good, thank you. How are you? Yes, not not too bad. Enjoying the sunshine. Yeah. And um, how is your lockdown garden? Wow. Well, it's 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 taken a slightly unusual route. Um, <laughs> Uh, of course, I wasn't planning to do this, and the the, the ridiculous irony for me is that uh, you know the key growing window where where most gardeners are kind of uh, out on their plots day and night is of course when our key filming window is for the for the BBC. Mm. So it's kind of half of May, all of June, and half of July. I'm, I'm basically not not at home in my garden usually, mm. and so it's the same uh, same scenario for other other presenters as well. And so it's just been this. Kind of extraordinary opportunity you know it's the uh, the old adage that the shoemaker's children are the worst shot yeah. and uh, you know huge irony that I've not been able to look after my own private garden for the last three years you know because mm. I'm running around the country doing telly and then making lovely gardens for other people <laughs> and so being able to get on with this has been it's felt like the most sort of luxurious and pleasurable thing to be able to do um, and also the novelty of not having a client saying, I like this, I don't want that, could you change this? Um, yeah. I can just do whatever I like, um, which is uh, <laughs> which is lovely. So um, it, it's been a bit of a weird, weird sort of process because the garden's very small. It's a, well, uh, very small compared to what I'm, I'm used to dealing with. So it's it's 110 square metres. Mm. But what it's meant is that I'm I'm used to working with acres and acres and acres and having places where I can dump things, store materials, do all of that. What this garden has meant is that all of it is in the garden all of the time. So, you know, I've got three three pallets of uh, bricks, uh, four dumpy bags of sand, uh, another dumpy bag now full of horrific clay soil, which um, I'm not even going to try and ameliorate. Um, <laughs> I'm just getting rid of it. Um, I mean, it's so bad. I uh, I pulled out a cube of it about the size of a, of a golf ball. Uh, and sort of squished it together into this cube, left it overnight. Um, and the next day, it literally sounds like a hammer on metal. It is absolutely rock solid. I mean, it's, oh, pottery, wow. it's pottery clay. Yeah. You know, I could uh, I could whip up a few bowls here. Yeah. Um, so that was uh, an interesting uh, discovery. I knew, and it's very odd how the pockets are placed through the garden because there's areas that aren't that at all. So I've just been trying to work work around that in terms of what I'm growing and where. Mm. And then also the particular challenge of this garden is that it's it's in truth it's north facing. I mean, it gets about six hours of sunlight directly in the morning mm. um, and that's it so that also as well very much very much limits what's possible but I have to say you know I've got uh, my tomatoes have done really well in the glass house my beans are going well so they're clearly getting you know that's the that's the official measure isn't it of yeah. uh, a full sun is six hours but I'd say it's the official minimum measure mm. anyway sorry that's a very long answer to a, <laughs> a question but yes it's, no, um, that's great. it's, it's, it's going well so have you found it Obviously, there are the challenges with the the size and the clay pockets, but have you found it quite freeing to be in charge of your own garden rather than other people's? Yes, indeed. So there's been no sort of particular agenda. So, you know, I don't, I'm not sort of pushed to produce a you know particular level of yield or so many of this plant or of this, uh, of this fruit or of this vegetable. So that's, yeah, that's been a very nice thing because it's, you know, I came into came into gardening at whenever I started seven eight, and it was all about uh, pleasure up until I was about fifteen, and then I started working in horticulture, and the graft kind of uh, kicked in. Um, so it's nice to be doing this, you know, just purely for my own my own entertainment, really, and my own learning and my own ex- experimentation. I think, um, you know, the few private gardens I've had of my own have always been sort of experimental grounds. I had a, a property in the Midlands year, years ago. And I was there for three years, and each of those three years, I put in an entirely different garden. Um, so ripped out everything was there and re- rebuilt a uh, rebuilt a garden. Now at the grand old age of forty four, I don't quite have the energy to keep pulling that off. But, um, <laughs> but it's uh, yeah, it's, it's it's been a lovely thing to uh, to do, and I think as well, 
you know, having having run the the Physic Garden for so long and realised the particular this is Chelsea Physic Garden, of course, uh, mm. on, the, on the banks of the Thames, um, London's oldest botanic garden. Um, having run that for so long and taken advantage of the the microclimate there, I realised that actually in in Zone Three, where I am in South London, the microclimate's pretty similar. Mm. So it means the growing season is massively extended. Mm-hmm. The soil is warmer earlier in the year. Crops will last until till later. I mean, it has some disadvantages in as much as I've had a few things bolt this year just because of the intensity of the heat. But mm. I think it's, um, yeah, it's a real opportunity. Um, you said that obviously with limited sunlight, if you've got a north facing garden and, and coming across things like clay soils, if for new people that are listening, what would your advice be to them? Because I think it can sometimes be a bit demoralising if you're really keen in spring to get going and then suddenly you realise that, you know, perhaps your garden isn't as well suited as it could be. Yeah, I'd say give up and buy a fabulous estate. Sorry. <laughs> um, oh, but if, Sell if you haven't got the finances for that. Um, no, I mean, I think I, I've been lucky enough to garden all over the world and just just to see the sort of extreme places that people garden and, and the sort of sheer um determination really and you know right plant right place if you if you suit your crops to what you've got there's there's every opportunity and you know my my clay soil here is the worst of the worst of the worst most people aren't going to be uh, thwarted by that but of course there's so many things you can easily organically do to sort out yeah you know soil situations like that and um I mean, basically, the answer for any soil problem, of course, whether it be uh, a dry and free draining soil or a heavy and claggy soil, is always organic matter. Mm-hmm. And so, that's that's something I've done. Something I always advise to, to to new gardeners is, you know, start start with your soil, understand your soil. You know, it's a very old old fashioned thing to do. But I uh, most sites that I work on, I end up digging a, a profile pit. I don't know if you guys have done that yourselves, but it's. Um, essentially about a 90 centimeter deep pit which you dig down in stages and it just gives you literally a sort of a soil profile and it, mm. and it really sort of shows you what you're what you're up against so you can identify of course the the depth of the sub, uh, the topsoil the depth of subsoil and then the subsoil of course the uh, the amount of organic matter that's in there uh, or not um, the amount of um, activity in terms of uh, of insects whether the soil has got good air content, you know, if you get that horrible, horrible smell coming out of um, very wet, claggy soils, that tends to be a, you know, an anaerobic condition where there's not much uh, air and oxygen in the soil. And so that's sort of desperately in need of, of mitigation. Mm-hmm. And you can also find things like compaction pans, which you can see, you know, very sort of clear shelves or layers in the, in the soil profile. So once you've got that sort of basic understanding of what's lying underneath, mm-hmm. then you can start to sort of address and improve. And also, of course, you've got uh, all the all the potential weeds, which has been another challenge for me here. Um, garden's absolutely full of bindweed. And the, the property I had in the Midlands, I managed to eradicate it in a single season by by hand digging. Uh, I kind of fooled myself that I could do the same thing here again. And um, uh, as you guys well know, you only need a sort of, a, you know, a two millimetre fragment of bindweed <laughs> yeah. root and it will regrow again. It's just it's just unbelievable. So, um yeah, so unfortunately, one thing I haven't been able to do this year is grow potatoes. I have an area allocated to that, mm. and it is so full of bindweed. So, I mean, bear in mind this this area is about half the size of, a, of an average uh, uh, domestic lounge. Uh, I've now spent something like fifteen hours going going through it, literally hand filtering the soil. Um, uh, I mean, of course, you can you can literally grow bindweed and let it run up canes and uh, and then use glyphosate. But I'm I'm trying to remain chemical free. So, mm-hmm. yes, I have uh, I have been doing a lot of digging. Anyway, <laughs> I digress. But the um, yeah, my message really to new gardeners really is that that anything is possible. You know, you can grow virtually anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's always worth a stab, and there's nearly always a plant that's going to be able to cope with it. You know, even if you're growing in a uh, in a garden that, that gets virtually no direct light at all, there are edibles you can grow in there. You know, things like red currants, black currants, white currants will grow in shade and produce mm-hmm. your crop. So there's always something you can do. Yeah, um, and you mentioned that you've you've had a very varied growing career so far. What would you say have been some of your biggest successes in that time? Oh, in terms of um, in terms of edibles, um, I think the 
the things that have sort of surprised me have, have, have been the things that I've sort of deemed as as borderline impossible um, mm. that, that that have worked. So when I was gardening in uh, in Norfolk, uh, it was yeah, obviously it's a relatively low rainfall part of the country. Uh, I was in walled gardens, and so I thought I'd have a have a go at growing um, Lufa cylindrica, which of course is the uh, uh, the Lufa that gets used. Um, uh, in the bathroom, uh, so many people tend to think that that weird-looking brown, scrunchy thing comes from the comes from the sea. I'm not quite sure why, where that notion comes from, but of course mm-hmm. it's the uh, it's the internal skeleton of a cucumber, basically. And it's it's a tropical plant. It needs a long, long growing season, um, and it needs a lot of height. So I built a, a four meter frame for it, uh, and so it's actually baked in the south facing um, uh, walled garden. And it needs a lot of food. It's got a gross feeder. Um, yeah, put all the all the effort in, and uh, wound up that Christmas. Uh, I, I'm not sure my friends and family were too thrilled with this, but everybody got a loofah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny that yeah. you mentioned this, Nick, because as regular listeners of the Dirt will know, I'm growing loofah cylindrica this year. Ah, right. And not having much success, so um, I'm listening intently on anything that you can any little hints or tips that oh, you can offer gosh. so well yeah lots of height bake it feed it um yes yeah that's that's, that's i think there'll be relief it. come christmas though when everybody as you say doesn't end up with one perhaps <laughs> <laughs> but it's such a lovely thing to do and I, you know i like the idea that um you know edibles can go beyond just just being something you consume or there's a byproduct from it mm-hmm. or, or or whatever i mean i think it's lovely that um you know, the cocoa industry have found uh, and the coconut industry have found sort of uses for what used to be waste in the in the husks and they're now composted and, mm-hmm. you know, make brilliant mulches and the like. So I like that sort of duality. That's really great. And I think it's nice to hear that you can grow slightly more unusual things that people might not think of beyond just the the potatoes, the beans, the carrots, because obviously they're great, but sometimes, and I guess particularly if you've been growing for a while, it's Nice to have a little bit of an experiment with other things. I think it's always worth having a challenge. And I think one of the the, the great joys of, of gardening for me, of horticulture, is that, you know, I'm, I'm cited by various people as as uh, as an expert. And what I tend to say to that is, well, I've just spent longer making more screw-ups than anybody else. <laughs> um, and so I've sort of figured some stuff out on the way. But I think that's the that's the joy of gardening. You know, I was um, uh, wandering around my garden uh, this morning before I started uh, chatting to you guys. And it's that kind of, you, you just never stop learning. Every, everything you observe, every every little minutia, every plant response to every climatic change, it's, it, it's all those subtleties. And I think, yeah, I think there's something lovely about that and being able to just just continue continue learning continue growing yourself or oh, actually just think about it talking about uh novel successes one of the um one of the things we tried at the at the physic garden we created a, a jamaican provision ground uh and of course the provision grounds were, were effectively the sort of allotments that were allocated to enslaved people in in jamaica during the sort of peak of the the sugar trade mm-hmm. And we created that as a, as a celebration of, uh, you know, Jamaican independence. So it's sort of tied up with that uh, particular year of independence. But we grew a lot of sort of things that I didn't imagine would be possible outdoors in the, um, in the UK. And again, partly that's down to the, the microclimate of the, of the visit garden. Uh, partly it was down to how we grew and how we cultured things. But, you know, we got stands of um, sugar cane that were sort of eight foot high by the, by the end of the season. Wow. I think the one... Sort of thing that astounded me because I just didn't believe it would ever work um, was growing watermelon, mm. and of course that's uh, you know one of the few um, commercial crops ever to come out of Africa. I think they've given us uh, watermelon coffee, um, uh, and I think that's about it. There's not many other things that have come from uh, come from Africa, but um, yeah, really really doubted it would work. And again, got it in a you know really really hot spot where it's being baked all all day obviously you get the incredible um heat island effect of, of london which which warms the physic garden and you get the thermals coming up from the from the river you know the fact that the garden is is walled itself um but i normally say at the start of my talks one of the key reasons the garden is uh, is so the garden there is so warm 
is that it's surrounded by lots and lots of very old millionaires who have the heating on all the time. <laughs> and I think, um, that sort of feeds into the um, into the microclimate of the uh, of the garden. Yeah. And so, as the story goes, we uh, we we managed to get this um, this watermelon. We had several of them growing, but managed to get one of them to uh, to crop, and it got up to about watermelon size i guess mm-hmm. it was doing um doing really well our one kind of decent uh, <laughs> specimen watermelon and then suddenly mysteriously overnight it's disappeared oh, um, no. and what was left was a rather uh, gnawed um sort of stem so it was either a slightly exotic fox um <laughs> or, a, or a squirrel that tried to take our watermelon in the night but um, oh no but anyway so we so we nearly got there uh, we nearly got to uh, got to harvest it but um, i mean I, I never would have been able to eat in it uh, eat it unfortunately i have um have a major phobia about watermelons i got um food poisoning from a watermelon at a Mormon line dancing disco in Wyoming when I was 16. <laughs> I think you've mentioned that in one of your columns before. <laughs> I feel like I've heard this anecdote before. Quite, quite possibly. So I think the most extraordinary, I'm, I'm not a Mormon by the way, I was just uh, dating somebody who was, but, um, uh, but yes, yeah, so I can't eat them, but they are the most amazing thing. So I'd say, say to people, particularly growing in the southern half of the UK, I mean, you can do it, you can do it in a polytunnel, you can do it in a glass house, or if you've got a really hot spot in the corner of a garden, you can grow watermelons. It is possible to do. Mm-hmm. And they're quite a beautiful looking plant as well. They're sort of quite a hairy leafed cucumber. Mm-hmm. Interesting thing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, obviously talking about experimentation in the garden, there is the flip side of that as well. And things that haven't gone quite so well so can you tell us about any of your particularly notable garden disasters oh gosh how long have we got um <laughs> yeah there's, there's there's lots and lots and lots so um one one uh, fairly dramatic one was um uh, a, a few years back when i was when i was running the the visit garden i put on exhibitions each year to try and sort of elevate our, our visitor numbers and one year we put on a a display called Superfood Summer, and it was all about debunking the myths around around superfoods, mm. and and sort of highlighting the alternatives really. And so, you know, one example would be that uh, you know blueberries cost a fortune; um, they're always sort of pushed as this superfood. I mean, in fact, superfood has low no legal definition whatsoever; mm. it's just mm. a marketing term. Um, but actually, the level of antioxidants, which is the the magic bit that supposedly makes uh, you know blueberries this superfood, uh, you find equal quantities of antioxidants in the same volume of black currants and blackberries. Mm-hmm. Which of course, we can grow grow here very easily. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm a real I'm a real fan of blueberries as well. But it's just to make that point that you don't need to pay a pay a fortune. Uh, and various other things came out as well from the from the research, like for example the, the whole pomegranate thing is a complete scam there's there's no special polyphenol there's no special uh, nutrient profile in pomegranates at all it's just a big sham um but as part of this display we wanted to have some kind of um we grew quinoa and various various different uh, various different things which did uh, which did very very well it took me an entire year to stop the uh, team calling it quinoa but, um, <laughs> anyway, uh, that's just our inescapable britishness uh, but we wanted to have a real um a real wow factor so i bought in some semi-mature apple trees that were already laden with fruit and uh they looked you know absolutely fabulous and they arrived about two days before the exhibition put them in these giant wooden crates shipped them into the middle of the garden looked uh, looked superb and uh came back the next morning ready to open the exhibition and every single apple on the tree was on the floor uh, on all four of these trees oh, no. and uh much as we get advantages from the uh, warm microclimate in london we also get some major downers i don't know if you guys have come across these but uh central london and now out to surrey is absolutely full of these green parakeets oh. And they're they're highly destructive, and so the uh, the night before our exhibition, they decided to just ra- they didn't eat any of them. They just randomly pecked every single apple off the tree. Oh! And so it's um yeah a particular particular challenge of uh, of London uh, London growing. Yeah. I remember in uh, in childhood as well. This is a sort of family anecdote that's been spoken for for many years. But my mother spent a fortune buying all these uh, asparagus plants. 
uh, only to discover a year later, my father put them into the ground, that they, they hadn't grown at all. They hadn't emerged. And she eventually dug one up to find he'd very, very carefully planted every single one upside down. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, Puddle things never, uh, never made it. Actually, I haven't confessed to any of my own disasters yet, have I? This is just uh, this is just citing other random things that happened. I've, I've had many. I mean, as I say, my my beans um, this year, then they're, they're now recovering. But um, I I sowed them. I mean, what I thought was quite late, but um, uh, but unfortunately, because of the you know the fact that I'm hard landscaping this garden at the same time as I'm planting it, mm. I had to keep them in containers. So these poor things wound up in seven centimeter ca- uh, containers. Uh, with six foot long stems on them so they weren't best pleased Um, but this is where I say I think it's always interesting to see how far you can push plants and to observe and and, and see what you can do and what's really interesting is they've been in the the ground now for about 10 days Mm. incredibly late Uh, I you know tied them up onto all the all the canes and very very few leaves and very sparse and what's interesting now is that that every uh, at every leaf axial, um, there are new stems emerging and new flowers emerging. So it looks like they're going to thicken up all the way through their stems. Now, I had no idea beans would do that um, mm-hmm. two months ago, um, and now I do. So it's I think it's much as much as you can have disasters in the garden. I think there's you can always take something away from it and learn something from it. And and well. Hopefully these beans will crop and uh, uh, I'll have seen just how far I can mess with them before they decide not to do anything at all. I'm still thinking about the parakeets in London that you were talking about because I did not know this was a thing. Yeah. We're in Essex, so I've never heard about it. So I've been frantically Googling it just now <laughs> and seeing that it is actually true. Not that yeah, I'm not just making this stuff, for, stuff up for novelty on your yeah. <laughs> there's, there's all sorts of... Um, stories ascribed to to how they came to to be here it was um hilarious i did a, a main avenue garden at chelsea flower show in 2016 and for the entire build uh, of course those main avenue gardens uh, have uh, big london plane trees overhead and there was a, a parakeet nest in one of these probably about sort of eight foot high mm-hmm. and once an hour this little parakeet would stick its head out of a tiny little hole and kind of go Bark! What's going on out? What's going on out here? You're disturbing my uh, my nesting, and then disappear back in. But I have to admire these creatures. You know, they didn't ask to be here, and and they're they're making a go of it. And the the latest reckoning is in in Surrey alone, they think there's up to forty thousand breeding pairs. So I would say yeah. probably across London, there's two three hundred thousand of these these birds now, and you see them in all the parks. I mean, they're, they're beautiful to look at. They're an intense green with sort of red markings on their on their heads. The downside is that they make a really ugly noise and they scare the life out of other garden birds. So right. they land in, in my garden, everything else departs, unfortunately. Mm. And they destroy apple trees. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but the story goes, and I love it, it's probably an urban myth, but the story goes that uh, that during the filming of the African Queen with Elizabeth Taylor, is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, back in the 60s, roughly, I think. Uh, I think it was at Pinewood or one of the British studios, and apparently uh, for the jungle scenes they had parakeets which escaped from Pinewood uh, and went on to colonise and terrorise central London. Wow. Oh, Oh, that's such a good story. If it is true, yes, I hope it's. I hope it's true. Yeah. But um, but yeah, they're, they're they're a real novelty to see to see flying about. But, I mean, it's. I think it's just one of the uh, one of the the oddities about uh, about city living is is the amount of other. I mean, because obviously the fox population is absolutely massive mm. in um, uh, in London as well. In fact, I can digress to a little uh, mildly entertaining sub story here. You can chop it out later if you like. Would you like my uh, urban camping tale? Oh, we would love an urban camping tale. Okay, so, <laughs> so so talking about urban urban wildlife, uh, a few years back, I sort of mistimed my diary and had too many people staying at my house for me to actually be able to stay in my own house. <laughs> so I was like, right, what am I going to do? And I bought a little two-man tent for, uh, for camping up in Scotland, just a lightweight one, and so I'm going to try it out. And so put it up in my uh, my garden. This is in Zone, zone 3 in London. And um, first night passed without incident, although when I crawled out of the tent in the morning, I was greeted by a pile of fox sick being eaten by slugs and snails, which was uh, was fairly alarming. 
Um, the, the next night I was just getting to sleep and a pair of cats managed to get in between my fly sheet and tent and have a fight. And in the process <laughs> of me trying to kick them out, shredded my, uh, my fly sheet on the inside. Oh, no. Uh, but the third night was, was the real horror. I was just dropping off to sleep and something pushed against my side through the tent. And I woke up with a start to hear this horrible, wet, squelchy noise. And then the realisation of what, what was happening at that moment which was a fox, was marking the tent and me. Oh, um, oh no. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So that was my last um, my last attempt to urban camp. Just, yeah, uh, I mean, that would, that would definitely put you off, I think. Being pooed on by a fox? Yeah, I'd say. I'd say, yeah. Oh, dear. Makes for a good story, though. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. was worth it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think the whole um I think as well the the parakeets though they definitely make for a more exotic version of a, a garden visitor because it certainly be a nice change from my enormous terrifying Suffolk seagulls because oh, they really? scare off all of the other little birds as well but they don't only scare off the other birds they scare off all of the people everybody's pets everybody's oh really children. well they're they're enormous and very confident i would say <laughs> yeah they really are aren't they there's um i uh, one of the things i do is 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 looking after sort of big big gardens and estates for, for various people around the country and there's a place i was looking after in oxfordshire and it's where the the kite reintroduction has been um mm. uh, probably beyond mm-hmm. successful mm. and so o- over this estate there's, there's up to 10 kites at any time of uh, uh, daylight making that eerie kind of noise mm. and just lurking waiting for something to happen and I think god if I sort of fell down and knocked myself out I'd be carried away by this <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're fairly um fairly ominous and that yeah that eerie sound is very odd but but a fantastic program I mean given what was it 30 30 years ago kites were nearly wiped out mm. and uh they're now back uh in abundance I think it was Rutland they started and um yeah, everywhere. So it's good news. And um, so moving on to any tips and tricks and little shortcuts you might have. I know that now that lockdown is easing and a lot of people are going back to work and stuff who had plenty of time in their gardens might now be working on a very much reduced amount of time to work in the garden. So do you have any speedy shortcuts or quick tips? Oh, okay. Um, I mean, something I started thinking about at right at the beginning of, of of lockdown. I mean, none of us knew where it was going to go or what was going to what was going to happen. And so, part of my driver for, for you know growing a lot more um, veg in the garden was the prospect of uh, uh, of food shortages. Mm. Uh, and I, obviously, we didn't know how quickly that was going to to hit at the time. So I got very interested in the idea of uh, of fast veg. Um, you know the fastest ways of getting you know green nutrition mm-hmm. effectively um, and so I started various various different things so something I used to do years ago but I started um, sprouting um, and in case somebody hasn't any hasn't come across that term that isn't me becoming a suit it's um, it's the uh, the idea of sort of uh, growing germinating seeds at home uh, in just in the kitchen in, in, in jars mm-hmm. and it's um, I think it was quite popular in the 60s, 70s, had a bit of a hippy-dippy thing attached to it. But the the nutrient levels are fantastic. So I did um, a whole range of things, but, um, you know, spring onion shoots, for example. So that's just the seeds kept moist over about a week. Mm. Well, producing these lovely uh, sort of scallion-tasting shoots, which you can mix into a salad. Or you can equally, uh, broccoli works extremely well, as does fenugreek. And so all of those things, and all you have to do is rinse out your, your your jar of beans or seeds once a day and let it drain down. It doesn't need to be anything fancy. Um, and so, yeah, it's a delicious and very sort of fast um, uh, way of producing veg that, that costs very little, is highly nutritious and takes virtually no time um, at all. Um, and then in terms of the, the garden, I sort of really tried to focus on the sort of fastest um, and most nutrient-rich crops that I, I could produce. And obviously things like courgettes and the like are very quick, but their nutrient profile isn't, isn't great. So I tended to focus more on the brassicas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so something I got a very fast crop from this year um, was the new wokbrok. I don't know if you guys have tried that. No. no. It's, um, I'm not sure who's done the, done the breeding, but it's, um, it's a sort of a, an Asian um, 
uh, broccoli, it's a brassica basically, mm. it's a broccoli sort of type creature, but it's very, very fast, um, sort of quite skinny stem. So it's like a purple sprouting, um, but, but paler coloured. Right. And that must have been about uh, 90, 100 days from sowing to getting the first first wow. yield, which I think is pretty oh, wow. good for a, yeah. um, for a brassica. Um, yeah, so I think it's it's worth considering those sort of those fast, yeah, those fast yielding crops, uh, and then of course the um, uh, I've just been doing sort of various cut and come again uh, lettuce as well, mm. and I tend to sort of shear that very hard all at once, and then get you know two to three more harvests from it. But again, that's something you can even do on a on a windowsill if you've got a south facing windowsill. Very easy to do that. There's some fantastic different um, lettuce mixes you can get if you're into the sort of more bitter and sour thing, which is something that seems to have sort of fallen out of our our diet. Um, that's a great way of getting those those flavours back in. So yeah, my, my my tips really are about about that sort of speedy speedy production of um, uh, of food. I quite like having cut and come again lettuce or leaves. Um around because i find if i buy stuff from the supermarket or the shop i end up with so much food waste like when yeah. you live alone you can't get through it quick enough whereas with that you know you've got it there ready um you can just go back when you need more yeah exactly and i mean those pillow bags are absolutely terrifying at the supermarkets you know they they <laughs> modify the air inside them so one yes. of those bags um i heard this on radio four a while back um can sit um completely unrefrigerated and will have fresh crunchy looking veg in it for up to a month wow mm. you can imagine what's happened well i mean you get more nutrition from eating the bloody bag that it's in than the uh, than the actual <laughs> bag I, I imagine um after that so i i tend to avoid those those supermarket bags if i can because I, I honestly think they're not they're not worth eating they're just uh, uh, a decoration so yeah i think it's lovely like having that kind of um, yeah, and it's just a nice little show off as well. That you can put a little garnish on the side of yes. the uh, yeah. side of the dish, or because sometimes you only want a nice. small amount. You don't want a whole bag's worth, you know. If you are just putting mm. it as a as a little garnish, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. I also like to just grow, you know, really, really simple things, but that you can just, um, you know, you can just make uh, uh, make a presentation a bit more interesting. So I'm growing a um, nasturtium this year called Orange Troika. Mm-hmm. So of course, it's got the classic, incredible. Uh, uh, intense orange flowers but also the the foliage is is beautiful it's sort of a four-tone variegation mm. so lovely kind of dropped into uh, salads and the like and again actually that's another incredibly fast crop that has that um has that duality to it so of course you can use the flowers as a garnish and eat them you can use the leaves that lovely sort of it's a mustard oil in them that gives them that, uh, that yeah peppery. i've never had them they, they're quite peppery right yeah it's quite they're quite hot um and then you can do this um this lovely thing as well um by collecting the uh the seeds just as they're forming you can pickle them and turn them into what is pretty close to a caper mm. um, obviously capers are very expensive and uh I've, I've tried growing them in the uk and just about managed to get them into flour and they're, they're, they're pretty challenging you know they want to be baked in the mediterranean but, but actually a nasturtium is a great way of getting that same look and the same flavor and again it's about that sour flavor which seems to have fallen from grace in recent times but is a lovely mm. addition to our diets i think mm-hmm. yeah um so we tend to like to finish on asking people what their biggest gardening lesson has been. So if you had one takeaway from your career so far, what would it be? Probably um, don't go into horticulture if you want to earn any money. <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, no. What? <laughs> or maintain your own private garden. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, now, I'd probably go back to um, uh, to what I was saying earlier. and. Um, I've, I've sort of taught horticulture for the last 20 years in various different different guises and something I always sort of end up saying to, to students is you know the absolute key to horticulture and it ties into what I was saying earlier is is observation mm. it is looking and looking mm. and looking and looking again and by doing that I think you gain far more than you ever do from uh, reading textbooks or taking courses or the like it's 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 watching mm. the the responses of those plants to everything that you're doing to them, that the environment's doing to them, that other surrounding creatures are doing to them, that the soil is doing to them, and watching. Uh, and then, of course, what falls out of that is your capacity to then manipulate all of those things mm. and uh, uh, and improve the yield and improve the crop you're uh, you're growing. So, 
my I think my eyes over the years have I was with a um, uh, head gardener last year um, walking around and this was a site I was I was managing and instructing this this head gardener and as I was walking around I kept saying gosh honestly have you not spotted that six foot sour thistle in the middle of the Cleomias over there <laughs> and I think it it sort of does something to your eyes and your brain if you if you sort of um, and he's relatively new to the industry mm. um, that if you sort of keep that intensity of observation your eyes sort of tune into absolute minutia mm. um and although i'm sort of getting very old and gray and my eyesight is probably starting to fade i can still spot an aphid at, at three foot uh, or at six <laughs> foot or at ten foot just because i can notice the subtlety of how the plant's responding or that sort of uh that little misshaped bit at the top and so it's I think by being intensely observant, it means you can you can then interject and jump in at the earliest possible opportunity. Mm. You know, something like red spider mite is incredibly hard to spot. But if you have your eye in and you can see that very, very fine webbing just in the uh, in the sunlight or just see one strand with some little mites running up it. It's that sort of that minutia, which ultimately allows you, I think, to be a better, a better gardener. That's really useful. Thank you. Thank you for chatting with us today. It's been really great. And Blake, shall we go and grab Rose and a cup of tea? Okay, so a while back we said that we were going to try some new fruit that we'd never tried before. We did. Um, And I would like it to be known that one of us went to the shop and got some fruit that we'd never tried before and two people didn't. <laughs> I just have to say, in absolute fairness to Rose and I, dragon fruit is harder to come across in your conventional supermarket. Yeah, that is true. There's been none round here. But I mean, we'll support you. Also, the queue was very long. <laughs> we'll coach you. Yeah. We'll help So you. yeah, I did go and buy some figs and I'm going to give one a go now um, just because I've never, ever had one before. I'm excited. Feel like I'm missing out because people talk a lot about them. So if you heard that cracking, that was me opening the thing, and I'm now slicing it open. <laughs> They're smaller than I, I've always thought they would be. I've never really paid much Apart attention from to Laura's them one. Laura's yeah. huge fig. <laughs> oh, okay. I've sliced it now, and I'm smelling it, and it doesn't really have um, much of a smell, does it? Oh, do you? Uh, no. It just kind of smells fresh and watery. If that's a smell, uh, don't really think. Does water have a smell? But I get your drift. What about the texture? Do you like the texture of it? I haven't eaten it yet. Oh, okay. Sorry, I'm getting ahead um, of myself. Yeah, I'm just looking at it. It's very squishy. Okay, so do I just eat everything? Yeah, you can do. Down the hatch. Or if you don't think you want to eat the outside, you can always scrape the <laughs> center <laughs> out. <laughs> Did you get the crunch? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so if I've just scooped out the insides, and it's quite nice. Mm. I've grown up with like a major phobia of fruit, so. It doesn't feel much like fruit though, does it? It feels like. I like how crunchy yeah. it is inside. Is it crunchy? They're not always. <laughs> They're the oh, Have you really like, eaten one before? Yeah, I swear. <laughs> I've forgotten about it though, because I ate one ages ago, but I do like them. They're also, I guess I... it depends on the ripeness. Mm. What are your ones like from the tree, Laura? <laughs> really nice i actually had already eaten mine because i thought i wouldn't bring the conversation back around to my fig tree again but in the absence of any dragon fruit and i promise rose and i will do our side of the bargain when we can eventually find some yeah but yeah mine was nice probably could have done with a day or two more on the tree but it had split so i felt like it was asking to be eaten and it was enormous hand-sized almost I've always um, wondered because people eat figs with savoury food as well, don't they? Yeah, I had mine with cheese and crackers. Yeah. There you go. And I've always wondered about that because it seemed a bit of a weird match. But now I'm eating it, I can see how they pair together quite nicely. Well, I'll tell you what I want to do with mine that maybe you can do with the rest of yours in your packet. There's a blogger that I love called Garden Betty. And she's got a recipe on her site for fig pizza. With like a caramelised onion base and then slices of figs. And then I think she puts goat's cheese on top as well. Mm -hmm. But I thought that is definitely something that when we reach peak harvest season, I would like to be trying. I was actually going to say they're supposed to be really good with goat's cheese. Maybe the tanginess of the 
of the goat's cheese goes well with them. I put mine on porridge, which oh, I quite like. Yeah. Which is quite good. I think everyone to Laura's for pizza yeah. takeaway. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know <laughs> Laura, that laugh there was like, <laughs> but I'm not going to be cooking you pizza. I mean, I definitely will cook you pizza. It's just more like whether enough figs are all ripe at once. But, you know, we can have tiny individual serving pizzas. It will be fine. I have faith in your gardening abilities to get them all ripening at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Magic. <laughs> um, oh. So I've found, uh, as we were talking about fruit today, or I was eating fruit on the show, I thought I would find a fruit story. And I found quite a nice Thanks. one, which was um, in The Guardian. And the headline is, researchers turn to art for clues about changing fruit and veg. And the gist of it is that um, a pair of researchers are using old paintings and pieces of art to kind of like show how fruit and veg has changed over time by studying you know that's so clever depictions in art throughout the years so yeah I thought it was it is quite clever the only thing is you know how they'd like for example paint Henry VIII looking maybe more attractive than he actually was to attract his next wives do you think they did the same with the fruit and veg like oh look at our abundant beautiful produce when in actual fact it does say that in the article that um yes sometimes obviously it's not a true depiction and things get exaggerated or colors change or other things aren't the same as they are in real life so yeah they they're kind of like taking if they know the artist is somebody that would create art that is quite true to real life then that's kind of weighted more than something that's completely abstract because um obviously i was just gonna say yeah agree with that because the tudors didn't have um obviously refrigeration so that probably would have been like really horrible yeah <laughs> like when they're taking photos like what not photos when they're painting it so that's true Talking of the Tudors, Rose, you've just put together a really good piece in the latest issue that's about to come out, haven't you? Uh-huh. On, Tudor, on Tudor I went Beige. a bit um, nerd, nerd central with that because I just got far too deep into the Tudor research on on all of that fruit and veg and stuff. But yeah, it's so interesting when you um, get into it as well because one, one of the things that was in that article, um, I think you mentioned, Blake, is that the whole debate about orange carrots and I yeah. was reading about that as well because obviously everyone thought that, didn't you say, I think that the carrots were orange because they were bred from the Dutch and they made them orange, but maybe that wasn't actually the case, that they were orange way before. Yeah, that's right. So it says, obviously there's a kind of um, an urban myth that carrots weren't always orange um, that I've certainly spouted a lot of times. But yeah, reading this, um, it says that uh, the approach has already added doubt to the fact that carrots are only orange because the Dutch purposely cultivated such vegetables in honour of William of Orange. Um, The paintings show that the vegetable only became popular from the early 17th century. And he notes there are many depictions of orange carrots in earlier paintings. So, Mm. yeah, it's kind of like... There was just more variety of colours of carrots i guess exactly thanks which does make you wonder why did orange become the color that everybody liked the most because i know now you're seeing more carrots being sold in farm shops and stuff where it's like oh this is a bunch of heritage carrots and there's some purple ones as well and stuff but why i wonder why we decided on orange Yeah, yeah that is so true homework for this week is going to be finding that out if anyone knows the answer do let us know <laughs> I also yeah. think it's cool how much we love to paint fruit and veg. Like it shows how much we love it. Like even the <laughs> Egyptians used to engrave all of that, all of like watermelons and stuff onto their yeah. um, pyramid walls and everyone loves painting a fruit bowl. So yeah. like, I, I feel guess like that's it doesn't one move, of the most does it? Like a person <laughs> moves and is more difficult to paint, but yeah. a watermelon An just sits there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Practically wise, like there's less movement, so it's easier to paint. <laughs> But, um, oh, no, I think uh, that's so cool. I love really um, art and fruit and veg. So <laughs> why yeah. not combine them? <laughs> exactly. Um, so I found a really cool story this week that was on the Telegraph website. It's about a project in South London called the May Project Gardens. Mm, and this. they're basically looking to diversify environmentalism and give more people access to nature. 
um, via their community garden, which is really, really lovely. And um, basically, it was a charity formed by a man called Ian Solomon Cawell and named after his mother. And basically, they want to introduce young people to gardening, nature, fresh food, biodiversity and all of that sort of thing and make it more accessible because I think it's really true to say that maybe this whole industry isn't the most diverse industry and there's a quote in the article where he says um because of the language being used in the way it's framed it's very exclusive and the conversation mm. is dominated by rural and middle class types and then goes on to say nature is more resilient when it's diverse so why shouldn't the people involved reflect That's so that true. which i think is really true yeah and um at the forefront of what they do there's something called the hip hop garden ah cool like hip hop so music it's been going since yeah. Um, and the music is used to connect the young locals sort of with the environment. And there are different parts of the project. So there's hip hop, there's event management, employability, food and well-being. So it's developing skills within that and using the garden as central to that. And I think it's really great. I really, really like the idea of like teaching through something um teaching skills like really well-rounded skills through something else that you wouldn't yeah. really think rather than mm-hmm. saying we need to teach about employability so we're going to have a lesson on careers mm, absolutely and I you think there's like there's a lot doing there's certainly a lot to be said about people assuming that things can't go hand in hand like I don't know that this project is um aimed at 18 to 25 year olds and I certainly think about some of the things that I liked when I was 18 that wouldn't have necessarily gone hand in hand with gardening but there's you don't have to just like one thing there's a world of choice out there and you can enjoy hip-hop and gardening and anything I think as well if you if you go into something and um you're offering young people it at a level that they're used to or with something that they enjoy in it their attention's just going to be better anyway like you're gonna yeah. I know for me if it's around a subject that you enjoy or something that you're interested in you're gonna pay more attention you're gonna enjoy it more yourself and therefore it's gonna be easier for you to learn sorry I just, <laughs> <laughs> just like knocked this pan off my yeah. kitchen <laughs> Um, I think another thing that's really great in this article is it says that the group has also hosted pop-up cafes using the food that they've grown and then that's made money obviously to go back into the project (laughs) to go back into the project and adds a little sprinkle of entrepreneurialism so if anyone wants to find out any more about that because it's really great and there's there's a lot to see there's the article on the telegraph but also the website for the project itself is mayproject.org so that's may like the month project.org i also have an article from the telegraph and this one is also pretty nerdy so enjoy and it's basically (laughs) about um people who have been doing a lot more gardening during lockdown which we've sort of spoken about a million times um but obviously they've been doing more digging and they've been actually finding a lot of um sort of historical relics hidden in their garden which i thought was um, yeah really cool so um talking of medieval that we were talking about just now they were found like medieval belts and things and um neolithic so cool yeah because i think we all dream about sort of doing some digging and then just finding our fortune like hidden (laughs) in the the garden and then you're like yay i'm set for life now with these golden ancient coins or whatever (laughs) um yeah and um it was just quite a nice read really so um Mm. but i think it has a bit of a of a broader message as well because um peter Revel, who um is a liaison officer a fines liaison officer um um said that one of the benefits of lockdown is that people having the time to sort of think about who came before them and where they are now so which is quite interesting like yeah. obviously 
we own our gardens now but we haven't always owned them so mm. I think it's good to think about the plant because you might find plants in your garden that suddenly sprout up and you're like I didn't plant this and they could have been like there from previous owners or um and I think it's cool to think about your garden as having a bit of a history so yeah, yeah. definitely I've never found anything exciting in my garden oh no sometimes like um just like a potato tuber from last year that got missed when that's exciting though surprise potatoes yeah it'll be like why is this potato popping up nowhere near the rest of the potatoes oh it's because it's from last year or the year before and you're from um the oldest recorded town you live in the oldest recorded (laughs) i am which is the oldest recorded town in britain so where i live is just a stone's throw away from the old norman castle so yeah there's um there's a lot of history around here but my garden is paved over so mm. I don't know what's underneath. You have to get I those slabs up thought, Maybe I'll just lift them up and find <laughs> out what's down there. I'm sure there's some ex- interesting yeah. old relics down there. Exactly. We can film the grow your own version of the antique, not the antiques roadshow. What am I talking about? <laughs> what was oh, the um, one time where they dug stuff up? Yeah, time team. Let yeah, me- <laughs> I love time team. Um, but actually it was quite funny in the article because um, they said that we shouldn't feel embarrassed about taking photos of our discoveries because obviously I think I'd be the sort of person who'd find something and be like, this has to be a million years old and it's from last week or something. So, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, I just dropped this the other day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I swear this is ancient and it's it's from Ikea or something mm. like that. So. For the turn of the millennium, my friend and I... Um, whilst we were children dug um in this time capsule because it's make a time capsule so we did it and we buried it in the local woods and (gasps) is it still there back and see i don't know oh hopefully so it's what 20 years ago now um but also um bringing it back to plants because my grandparents have just moved and actually what was quite interesting is they said that they weren't gonna plant anything this year because they were gonna see what was left over from the previous owners and like grew back up and oh, see if they needed idea. to actually like buy any more plants so yeah I think go out in your garden and sort of become more of I can't remember the man who presents time team be more like him but I can't remember <laughs> <laughs> it's on the tip of my tongue what's his name I'm gonna have to google it I actually know the woman from time team do you, do you? yeah well, I know. I mean, yeah, we've. She's a Green Party activist, and oh, campaigned for her. That's cool. Um, I dug up bones in my garden. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> what kind of bones? Yeah, I don't know. And honestly, I was too frightened to find out because th- it comes back to what Rose was saying about being embarrassed. That if you took them somewhere, like, oh no, I've just dug up bones. What is this? And then they say, yeah, someone just buried their roast chicken dinner in the garden. Or something. <laughs> yeah. But um, I wonder if it might have been perhaps someone's poor departed pet maybe but um there was that and there was also a horseshoe also dug up a horseshoe maybe it was a horse (laughs) (laughs) i think we probably know i've been a bit bigger if it was a horse yeah quite yeah yeah, that is so true um also his name is tony robinson oh yes that i couldn't think of um Cool, I'm glad we've settled that. It's really satisfying when you can't remember something and then you can just find it on the internet, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I really need to know Tony Robinson's name today. So yeah. Um, Laura, yeah. I think you've got some jobs on the plot for us in a minute, but first of all, it's that time where we have to record the advert. So, as we said at the top of the show. This episode of the podcast is in association with the brilliant people at Beer 52. If you want a little bit more background on Beer 52, it is the world's most popular craft beer discovery club with over 150,000 members that they send a brand new case of beer out to every month. Sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah, and if you were listening last week, you'll have heard that Laura got hers and she was trying that last time around. Mine hadn't turned up, but it now has. It actually came about an hour after we finished recording last week. So I've had to wait the whole weekend and all of the week to wait to try it. 
but I'm so excited. The day is here. It is. I've opened the case and um, I put one in the fridge so it would be nice and chilled for drinking on the podcast today. So Lovely. I'm excited. Well, if so you if go, I crack that open. Yeah, if you go and grab that and then I will say a little bit more about Beer 52 and what they do. Um, another thing that is also worth saying is that although you get a selection of beers in every case and you never get the same beer twice, if dark beer isn't your thing, you can choose the lighter option. And that's good for you, isn't it, Blake? It is because um, it can often be difficult to find vegan-friendly beers. So if you are vegan or you know somebody that is, you'll probably um, be able to relate to that. But if you just tick the light option when you're selecting which one you want, then those beers are vegan-friendly. So you know that you're drinking something that's vegan. So I've got my crate here. So I'm opening the box back up now. It comes with a magazine, which is quite exciting. It's called Ferment. Uh, looking forward to getting my teeth into that and it also comes with a snack other things to get your teeth into (laughs) exactly and then the eight beers are inside so I'd got one out and I put it in the fridge it's a pale ale so I'm going to open that now lovely and while you're doing that I will just explain the brilliant offer that beer 52 have have kindly provided for us they're offering a case of eight craft beers sourced and curated from the best breweries around all you need to do is go to www.beer52 which is b-e-e-r-5-2.com forward slash dirt and those beers will be free to you you just have to cover the 5.95 for postage i think that's a really good offer okay i'm cracking it open right now oh yeah yeah (laughs) i love that sound It smells really, really nice. So what kind are you drinking now? So it's a pale ale. Um, On the back it says, it's a clean, balanced and zesty beer with piney, citrus and stone fruit notes. Nice. And I can confirm it is. Ah. (laughs) So you can imagine yourself out in your garden after we finish recording with that, surveying your veg crops. I think I'm going to take it outside and have a little walk around while sipping it and just take a look at the garden, yeah. That sounds great. The... Best thing about it actually was that uh, I don't know whether other people do this as well, but sometimes I order something and I forget I've ordered it. Yeah. Um, and despite the fact that we've been talking about it all day when we were recording, when it actually turned up, I was like, I haven't ordered anything online. <laughs> this parcel can't be for me. And then I got to the door and it was this. And honestly, like my face must have lit up because the um, person delivering it kind of gave me a knowing look of like, uh, your bits have arrived. <laughs> so I was super excited. And then I had to wait all weekend to try it. But oh, yeah, it's been worth, worth it. the wait. So you know how last week you got to sit back and drink your beer whilst I did the jobs on the plot? Yes. Look how the tables have turned. (gasps) The worm has turned. I will go and do jobs on the plot and you enjoy your delicious beer. I will. Cheers. The veg garden is bursting at the seams with produce at various stages of growth and there's plenty to keep you busy. It's as important as ever through the summer months to keep on top of your watering and feeding routines, so make sure you familiarise yourself with the needs of each different crop. Keep an eye out for pests in hot weather, especially in undercover spaces, as they can take hold rather quickly in those ideal conditions. As ever, catching them early can be key to minimising the damage to your crops. Look at different natural environmental controls to see what works best for the type of pest you're struggling with. Now is the time to finish off summer pruning of your fruit bushes. Trim back this season's growth, which helps more sunlight get to fruits to encourage them to ripen. It also helps with air circulation to ward off fungal diseases. Keep on top of picking fruit and veg that are ready for harvest. You may end up with gluts, but picking keeps the plants productive. There are plenty of ways to use up excess gluts. See the August issue of Grow Your Own for David Dominey's advice. We'd love to see how your summer gardens are progressing, so do send us pictures on our social media accounts. Have a lovely week, and until next time, happy growing! Thanks again for listening to The Dirt and don't forget to subscribe for free to make sure you never miss an episode. We'd love it if you rate and review wherever you get your podcasts 
And don't forget to tell all of your lovely garden and allotment neighbours. Plus, as a special treat, we've got an exclusive Grow Your Own magazine offer just for the dirt listeners. Head to growfruitandveg.co.uk forward slash gpod7, that's G-P-O-D and the number 7, or call 0800 904 7000 and quote gpod7 to receive seven issues of our magazine Grow Your Own straight to your door for just $29.99. That's $11.94 off. Every issue is edited by me and the team and is packed with gardening advice and jobs to tick off your list and a big bonus. Each magazine comes with a selection of free seeds so you can get growing straight away. Check the episode notes for details and terms. And a final exciting note, do you or someone you know have great gardening advice, dirty gardening secrets or funny plot disasters? You could be our next podcast guest. Email the dirt at growfruitandveg.co.uk to let us know.